Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. With our first round of submissions for 2020 wrapped up, it probably doesn't come as a huge surprise that we're on the hunt for a few new narrators. We're looking to expand the diversity of our current roster. In particular, we'd love to hear from some African-American and Hispanic narrators, as well as females with an English accent. If that sounds like you, Submit a short clip of yourself, one to two minutes, of yourself reading to talestoterrify at gmail.com, and we'll get back to you. Starting next week, we'll begin our run up to the annual Bram Stoker Awards. We've managed to secure four out of five nominees, as well as a tale by this year's Lifetime Achievement Award winner. Look forward to those in the next few episodes. But for this week, We've got one longer tale for you. A tale that might make you second guess what you choose to touch. Brought to us by author Matthew Nichols. Matthew Nichols holds a master's degree in history and works in the IT field. When he's not working, he's writing, gaming, reading prose fiction and comic books, or exploring his own little corner of Ohio. 
He has published short stories and publications such as Under the Bed, Aphelion, Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and Electric Speck, as well as anthologies such as Shrieks and Shivers from the Horror Zine, Nine Tales Told in the Dark, Hellfire Crossroads, and the October 2019 Ink Stains Anthology. Listen with me, children of the night, to Matthew Nichols' Toucher, a Tales to Terrify original. Whenever she steps into the opaque plastic of the hazmat suit, Esther always feels like she's stepping into a body bag. Once inside, she zips the suit all the way up. Her breath fogs the faceplate. Under the suit, she's wearing her old nurse's scrubs and tennis shoes. She straps her thigh holster over the suit and slides her handgun into it. She grabs the small cart she purloined from the local Aldi's and pushes it toward the front door. She checks the peephole to make sure the street is clear. Then she reaches out, grasps the doorknob, and with a twist and a shove, the ruined world outside comes into full view. Hester wrestles the cart over the threshold, down the steps, and onto the front steps. She turns, closes the door behind her, and locks it. She further scans the street for signs of movement. Save for some bits of trash blowing about in the spring breeze, there's nothing. Esther pushes the cart down to the sidewalk and makes a right. She's heading to a nearby CVS to get some cold medication and other items. She's been feeling under the weather and doesn't want to run the risk that she'll fall ill. There's too much to do, too much to keep track of. At the next intersection, she makes a left, crossing the empty street. It's a cloudy day and colder than usual for spring. No one is outside. Most aren't brave enough to venture out unless they have to. Not as though traveling during the day is any safer, but at night, there's a stronger chance she might accidentally run into someone, and even with the suit, that could be enough to attract the attention of one of them. She reaches the CVS after about 20 minutes of walking. When she makes for the doors in the front, she almost doesn't see the man closing in on her from behind. The only reason she sees him at all is because of his reflection in the glass. Esther spins, drawing the gun and training it on her would-be attacker. The man skids to a halt, ten feet from where she stands, trying to keep her arms steady. He's mostly naked, save for a pair of tattered boxers. He wears no shoes. Blood pools around the shredded soles of his feet. There's a wild look in his eyes. Touch her, wild. Please, he implores. Please, just, just let me touch you. Just once. No, she says. Just one time. He pleads again, taking a step forward. You look just like my wife. Please, I just... I said no, Esther emphasizes, 
Try to touch me, and I'll shoot you. The man takes another step forward. Then another. A sound like something between a pig's squeal and a circular saw echoes from somewhere nearby. You need to stay away, Esther warns him again. Can't you hear that? The man looks in the direction of the sound, then back at her. He doesn't care. He's past caring. She's going to have to kill him. Please, he moans. He tries to close the distance, and Esther puts a bullet through his head. The force of the round hitting his skull snaps his head around, spinning his body to the pavement. Blood and brain matter splatters the ground around him in a wide, wet arc, and in the same instant, Esther has turned back to the double doors. She jams her fingers into the lining between the doors and forces them open. The pig saw grates at her from across the street. Closer now. Esther grappled with the cart until it was across the threshold. Then she turns around and pushes the door back together. Then she gets to work on the inner doors. Only when she is safely inside, with two sets of doors between her and the unseen thing approaching from the street, does she dare to look back outside. Nothing happens, at first. The man lies prone on the ground, blood bubbling from the small crater in his head. Esther gasps and shrinks away from the door when the man's leg lifts up. Red furrows open in the skin of his calf, the flesh bowing in and breaking under the goad of large teeth. She looks away, just as all the skin below the bite mark sloughs off and disappears. At least he was dead before this. Millions of others all over the world weren't so lucky. Shaking, Esther gives herself a moment, then collects herself, stands up, and goes in search of what she needs. There isn't much left of the dead man when Esther finishes gathering the items on her list. The cart is filled with cold medicine, boxes of tampons, several cans of chicken noodle soup, tea, and several bottles of water. On her way out, she stops at the checkout remembers there's no one to wait on her, and moves for the doors. She checks the area and feels her stomach turn. Only the man's upper half is left. His face is gone, and his right arm is missing. His innards are strewn about him in a sloppy pool of gore. Her gaze is drawn to his chest, his left arm, and his abdomen. She allows her eyes to roam over the slightly defined muscles in his arm, chest, and belly. Suddenly, she feels the need to touch him and recoils from that desire as though it burns her physically. As soon as she's through the doors, she quits the CVS in a hurry, making for home. The entire time, she is thinking of the man. She tries to recall his face, but can't. When she does, she sees wide blue eyes, the scruffiness of his face and the shock of black hair rising from his head. She thinks that maybe it wouldn't have been so bad to let him touch her, to reach out and wind his fingers around her upper arm, 
just to feel for that one moment. And before she shuts down this train of thought for good, Esther briefly wonders whether she would have had time to touch him before the creature got them both. When she arrives on her street, she looks both ways to make sure there aren't any other touchers lying in wait, then hurries across. She pushes down the cart's handlebars just enough to lift the front wheels onto the sidewalk, and then she's practically sprinting for the door. This part of any trip out into town is always the worst. The anticipation of hearing feet pounding across the street toward her. The desperate cries for someone, anyone, to touch them. Esther manages to keep her hands from shaking as she inserts the key, twists, and pushes the door open. She's hyperventilating as she maneuvers the cart up the stairs and across the threshold, then shoves it roughly into the house as she grabs her key, slams the door shut, and engages all three locks. Her need to get out of the suit is a physical thing that chokes her. She almost wrecks the zipper as she yanks it down. She falls to the floor in her haste and crawls, slimed with sweat, out of the suit's cloying confines. She rolls onto her back and stares at the ceiling, willing her breathing to slow as the air cools her skin. Between the chicken noodle soup, the cold medicine, and plenty of bed rest, Esther manages to kick her fledgling illness over the next two days. She updates her inventory. Everything checks out. She checks the planked windows for any signs of weakness. There's no give in any of the planks, save for one, and she shores that up immediately. She disassembles, cleans, and reassembles her weapons several times. She tries not to think of the man. She tries not to remember what he looked like, or imagine what he might have felt like. In the evening murk of her bedroom, she resists the temptation to slide her fingers under her panties. She tries not to wonder how much she could have felt if she'd stepped out of the suit, pulled him on top of her, and let him inside her. How long they would have had before the inevitable arrival of one of the creatures. She tries. And tries. And tries. The days pass. No one tries to break in. She goes nowhere and spends most of her time shoring up the barricades, cleaning, or sleeping. When she dreams, she sees hundreds of blank-faced, slender men clad only in boxers, all of them coming toward her, all of them reaching. One morning, Esther awakens to the sound of a hammer. It's been so long since she's heard anything like it, it's borderline alien. She sits up in bed, the sheets falling away from her as she tries to figure out what it is. When she does, she's up from the bed in an instant, gun in hand. She hurries to the rear of the house to look between the slats of the boards covering the window above the sink. There's a man in the backyard. He's setting up a tent, using a ball-peen hammer to pound a stake into the ground. She understands the logic of what he's doing. Breaking into someone's house to seek shelter is tantamount to suicide if it's occupied. The man is wearing a flannel shirt and jeans. His skin is grimy and dirt-streaked. 
Esther thinks he would be more at home in the woods or climbing a mountain than a suburban backyard, and the thought of him taking a wrong turn somewhere makes her snort and giggle. The man pauses. He cocks his head a little, like he's heard something and he's trying to pinpoint the source. Esther backs away from the window immediately, training the gun on the back door. It has long since been locked and boarded up, but if he turns out to be a toucher and really wants to get in, a little lack of give won't stop him. A hundred different solutions, each one of them more unrealistic than the other, blossom and wither in her mind all at once. She could wait until he falls asleep, then sneak out and set his tent on fire, with him in it. She could confront him with the rifle and force him from the backyard at gunpoint. Both options mean she has to go outside, and it increases the likelihood that he'll try to touch her. If he's more skilled than she is, he could wrestle the rifle away and turn it on her. Also meaning touch. Also meaning death. The man stands up, places his hands on the small of his back, arches his hips forward, stretching. Then he goes around the tent, tugging on all the lines to make sure everything is secure. When he's satisfied, he disappears inside the tent and doesn't come out again for the rest of the evening or all through the night. Two days pass and the man is still in Esther's backyard. He has not attempted to get in the house. He has slept, eaten, and lain in the grass, hands tucked under his head. It's like he's on vacation. He's outside, exposed, living in a tent. What if a toucher happens on him while he's still there, in her backyard? He doesn't even have a suit. Esther resolutely decides that if that happens, it happens. She won't get involved. She'll lock herself in the basement with the gun and rifle and wait until they leave before emerging. Unfortunately, it's not long before this possibility becomes reality. On the fourth day after the man's arrival, a toucher climbs over the fence. The man sees this, immediately stands up and ducks into the tent. He comes out with a revolver, which he aims at the nearly new toucher, approaching him with the butcher knife. The man points the revolver at the ground in front of the toucher and fires. A clod of grass and dirt leap into the air. The toucher keeps moving forward, and Esther sees that with this one, it's like a game. Let's see how close I can get before he actually shoots me. Except the game is over before he realizes it. The man fires, and this shot obliterates the toucher's throat and most of his lower jaw. The toucher slumps to the ground, his briefs going dark with urine and voided feces. The shot makes Esther jump. When she does, she knocks something off the countertop. It loudly clatters to the floor. The man doesn't immediately turn and shoot. He looks around to identify the sound. He looks at her, right at her. And his eyes widen a little when he realizes he's not alone, after all. Esther turns and flees down to the basement. At the top of the stairs, she slams the door behind her and locks it. She does the same with the door at the bottom, equipped with three deadbolts. She gets to the gun safe and messes up the code for the keypad three times 
because her hands are shaking so badly. She finally gets it open and pulls out the rifle plus four loaded magazines. She slaps one in, pulls back the slide, and takes cover behind a sofa angled toward the door. She aims the rifle at the door and waits. The day passes into night, and Esther never hears the sound of someone breaking in. She tries to stay vigilant, but coming down from the adrenaline leads to exhaustion and eventually sleep. She wakes up the next morning. She looks over the sofa and at the door. She listens. The house is quiet. There's some birdsong outside, but other than that, she doesn't hear anything. She puts the rifle and magazines back into the gun cabinet, unlocks the basement door, creeps upstairs, handgun held at waist height. When she reaches the top, she presses her ear against the door. Again, nothing. She waits for about 15 minutes before she decides it's safe to search the rest of the house. She unlocks the door and steps out of the stairwell. Nothing is amiss. All the planks over the window are intact. The glass on the other side isn't broken. The front door is equally undamaged. She looks down at the floor and sees that a slip of paper has been shoved under the door. Esther bends over, retrieves the piece of paper, and folds it open to read the message the man left for her. Ma'am, I'm sorry I scared you yesterday. I buried that man's body a couple of yards over, so you don't have to worry about that at all. If I'd known there was someone still in the house, I wouldn't have camped in your backyard. I know a lot of these houses are occupied, but you never can tell when you travel around like I do. I'll be moving along as soon as I gather some supplies. I should be back in the next couple hours, and I'll be on my way. Again, I'm sorry for troubling you. Sincerely, Gabe Walters. Gabe. Esther likes the name. It feels nice when it rolls off her tongue. Before she can help it, the ache is back. That horrible sense of being adrift, and dear God, she doesn't want him to leave. This is the first communication she's had with another human being that hasn't involved warning them away or outright killing them. It's a friendly voice. One she replays in her head with the southern drawl. No. No, she should let him pack up and move along, like he said he was going to do. That's the sensible thing to do. It's what she's had to do to survive over this past year, but she hasn't really lived. This is why the thought of Gabe's departure makes her feel like her heart is trying to wrench itself free of her chest. She hurries to the kitchen window, feels relief when she sees that Gabe's tent is still pitched. No sign of him, though. Before long, she has a pen in her hand, and she's writing a note on half a sheet of paper. She goes over the other houses in her head, and it turns out there's one she clearly remembers a family leaving from. It's across the street, diagonal from her house, just close enough for them to pass notes like this. Notes. Like they're in school, making fun of the teacher via post-it notes. She picks a can of green beans from the pantry, tapes the note to it. She checks the street outside through the peephole to make sure the coast is clear. When she's satisfied, 
She careens out the door, green beans in one hand and the gun in the other. She turns along the fence, lining her property, lightly underhands the can into Gabe's tent, then runs around the other side. She makes it back inside the house with no incident and shuts and locks the door behind her. Esther leans against the door and sinks to the floor, feeling multiple senses of exhilaration and discovery and wonder coursing through her being. The next morning, Gabe's tent is gone, and there's another note under the door. She eagerly snatches it from the floor and opens it to see what it says. Ma'am, thanks for the green beans and the place to stay. You've been a hell of a lot kinder than other people in this world. And, frankly, I was ready to try to hole up somewhere for a time. Also, I left you something on the front porch. It'll be a lot more convenient and safer than passing notes back and forth. Gabe. Esther trembles with excitement, but, as always, errs on the side of caution. She looks through the peephole and waits for a bit. After a few minutes, she decides no one is waiting to ambush her and unlocks and opens the door. Laid on the porch, square in the middle of the ratty old welcome mat, is a two-way radio. She picks it up and brings it inside. Once the door is firmly shut and locked, she turns it over and finds a note taped to the back. Channel 3, it reads, in Gabe's script. She checks the battery compartment. Two AA batteries rest inside. She paces around the house, nervous, twitchy, and unable to decide what she wants to say. How do you resume normal conversation in a world like this? Stiff upper lip, she encourages herself. She switches the frequency over to three. She takes a deep breath, exhales, then presses the talk button. Huh? Hello? She releases the button. She doesn't hear anything in response. Oh, panic flutters in her chest. So close, so close, she thinks, tries again. I am talking to the man with the tent in my backyard. She says haltingly, I'm, uh, I'm talking to Gabe. She releases the button again, and this time she hears something on the other end. It's barely perceptible, but then she realizes she needs to turn up the volume. She does, and Gabe Walter's voice comes through loud and clear. Need to turn up your radio! Gabe is almost shouting. Yes, yes, I've done that! Esther blurts excitedly. I've done it. I can hear you. Hey there, Gabe says. He does have a southern accent after all. Sorry for all the yelling, but I couldn't hear you. Jesus, it's good to hear someone else's voice other than my own. I agree completely, Esther says, the tears flowing freely. She wipes them away with her hand and sniffles a little. She asks him where he came in from. Atlanta, Gabe replies. I got out of there by the skin of my teeth at the start of everything. Still don't know how. Providence, I guess. Esther doesn't believe in this concept, but she of course doesn't bring this up. Please go on, Esther tells him. I'm sorry, I just need to hear you talk, and then I'll take a turn, I promise. How'd you figure out that you needed to, you know, stay alone? Well, Gabe says, that was back towards the beginning when we didn't know enough about them to make any sort of concrete conclusions. 
I started to get the picture when people started forming groups, and then those groups wound up being the first ones to get taken out. The ones who lasted the longest were there by themselves, so there you have it. I'm so sorry. It is what it is. Ain't nothing we can do about it except live with it. How about you? Esther has to think for a moment before she answers him. She's tried to blot out the memories of those awful first days, when everything was uncertain and everyone around her was unraveling. She eventually finds a thread of conversation and tugs on it. I come from here in town, she starts. Nobody bothers me. If they did, they'd risk drawing one of those things. But there's some people running around out there who don't seem to care. The touchers. Touches. Yes, they run around half-naked all the time and, oh yeah, Gabe interjects. I know who you're talking about. Sorry, didn't mean to cut you off there. No, go ahead. It's just, I ran into a lot of people like that, Gabe said. Like the guy I shot and buried the other day. Fucking loonies. Esther involuntarily recoils a little when he says that, is it really so crazy that someone would crack under the strain of not being able to touch the people they love? Would he think that she is crazy for, for thinking about it? Anyway, she continues, it's one of the reasons I wear a hazmat suit whenever I go out. I, I don't know if it'll be effective or not, but I feel safer all the same. I've got one too, Gabe said. Snagged one while I was passing through Tennessee. I heard someone broadcasting on a radio said that if one of the crazies tries to touch you when you're wearing the suit, it wouldn't draw in the creatures. Most of the time, anyway. He also said that there were some cases where it didn't work, but it was better than nothing. Good, Esther says. That's good to hear. In that case, then, aside from the touchers, I don't really have to worry about anyone trying to harm me. Good, Gabe says. Jesus, I'm sorry. I just realized I didn't ask you for your name. Here I am, prattling on, and I never asked you. Esther. Esther, nice name. Thanks. You were saying. So, I was a nurse in the ER. At the local hospital here, at St. Mary's. Hectic job. Crazy hours, but I liked the people I worked with. I had this house I'm in now. Not a whole lot in the way of money, but I was happy. And then... Esther trails off. Neither of them feel the need to fill the silence that follows. They are both well aware of what happened after and then. I was working with one of the doctors on a gunshot wound, she says. He was an older man who should have known better than to put his finger on the trigger of his gun before he was ready to shoot it. I stepped away from the table to get an instrument the doctor needed, and when I turned around, it was like the patient and doctor just burst. Jesus. Yeah. All the doctor did was lay his hands on him for a moment, and that was all it took. Then one of the other nurses, Helen, grabbed Priscilla's arm, and it was like they came apart. I, 
honestly don't know how I made it out of there without one of those things getting me. The whole place was like a slaughterhouse by the time I got outside. Gabe doesn't say anything for a bit. Then she hears a slow exhalation from the other side, followed by another soft, Jesus, I'm really sorry you had to go through that. Gabe says finally, I know how trite that must sound, but... It's not trite at all, Esther shears him. I appreciate it. That's actually the first time I've ever had the opportunity to talk to someone else about what happened. Same here. Once again, a pregnant silence descends between them. Esther doesn't like it. It makes her nervous, makes her afraid that maybe she said the wrong thing. Listen, Gabe says, I need to get some shut-eye. Can we talk again about five o'clock tomorrow evening? Does that work for you? Esther laughs good-naturedly. I think I can fit it into my schedule. Sounds good, Esther. Listen, this was great. Hearing another human being. Man, it's better than water after being in the desert for a while. I'm really tired. But I can't wait to talk to you again. Same here, Esther says. Good night. Good night. The conversation closed. Esther sighs and sets the radio back on the nightstand next to her. She closes her eyes and lets herself bask in the happiness that unfurls luxuriously across her being. It's something she hasn't felt for a very long time, and she savors every minute she can. Two months pass. Every day at five o'clock, Esther and Gabe talk on the radio. They talk about their lives before things collapsed. Gabe is ex-military and has served two tours in Afghanistan before being honorably discharged. He went to college courtesy of the GI Bill and got a degree in graphic design. He was working for a design firm in Atlanta when the arrival of the creatures brought civilization crashing to a halt. They talk and talk and talk. And to Esther, the sound of their voices is as beautiful as the most heart-wrenching aria. She wants to know all about him, and he her. Their relationship flourishes, though it's strictly limited to friendship. There's nothing to be gained from attempts at romance, so she avoids any pretense of feelings beyond friendship. She appreciates that Gabe does the same. They cover each other when they both have to leave to find supplies. They use the radios to let each other know when they're heading out, and they let each other know if they've seen any touchers roaming the area. They'll ask each other if they can pick something up for them. If they can find it, they'll leave it on the front of their houses. It's a good system, which is why Esther is taken aback when Gabe offers to accompany her on a supply run. She thinks the idea sounds crazy, and she expresses this sentiment to Gabe. No, it wouldn't be like the two of us heading out side by side, Gabe explains. I'd follow from a distance and cover you from afar. When we head back, you'd cover me. Esther hems and hauls for a little while longer, but eventually she agrees to the idea. When were you thinking of heading out? He asks. Tomorrow morning, she says. Around 8 a.m. or so. All right, Gabe agrees. 
I'll watch from the front window. Just give me a wave when you're taken off, and I'll wait about ten minutes. Sound good? Sounds good. They both sign off, and Esther makes her preparations. She brings the rifle and all the magazines upstairs so she doesn't have to gather it off the following morning. She lays out the hazmat suit, plus the thigh holster and extra magazines for her handgun. She leaves the cart directly in front of the door. With everything prepared, Esther eats a meager dinner and heads for bed. Esther rises at 6 a.m. the following morning. She eats, then steps into the suit. She doesn't feel as much trepidation as before. Today, she won't be alone. She steps out through the front door, then shuts and locks it behind her. She looks across the street to Gabe's house and sees him framed by the front door. He's holding a rifle, looking up and down the street. She gives him a wave, and he waves back, smiling and nodding. She returns the gesture and starts pushing the cart down the street. She's heading back to the CVS for tampons and more cold medication. She's been over her cold for a while, but she doesn't have anything else on hand in the event she gets sick again. Esther jumps when the radio squawks with static. She shakes off the surprise, unclips the radio from her belt, and thumbs down the button. Hello? She says into it. Gabe? Yeah, that was me, Gabe replies. Sorry about that. Radio version of butt dialing. Esther turns around. She doesn't see him. Where are you? She asks. I can't see you. I'm two blocks back, about to turn the corner, Gabe says. Esther remains where she is until he emerges from the side street she came out of not too long ago. He waves. She waves back. I got you. Don't worry, Gabe tells her. If I spot anything, I'll let you know. Thanks. Esther makes it to the CVS with no problem. She doesn't see the remains of the man's body and supposes another creature finished off what was left. The spot where the body lay is black with dried blood. She doesn't want to think too hard about the dried, raisin-like pieces that remain. She tells Gabe she's heading inside and he acknowledges, telling her he's set up inside a burned-out car across the street. She knows the one he's talking about blackened steel with some hints of blue, like flowers poking up through the cracks in the sidewalk. She sees his suited form in the car, nods, and heads inside. She gets what she needs and tells Gabe she's coming out. She's almost to the doors when Gabe says, Hold up. Esther stops. Instinctively, she heads behind the front desk and crouches there. What's going on? she asks. Got one, no, two people out here, Gabe says. Two sets of footsteps coming this way. How far away? They'll pass in the street between us, Gabe tells her. I figure we'll hold out here until they'll pass us. Then I'll give the all clear. All right. They both wait for a few minutes. Esther thinks she hears the faint tinkling of bells outside. She asks Gabe what it is. It's two women, Gabe tells her. They've got a piece of red string tied around both their wrists, and the strings got these little bells on them. A minute passes, then another, and another. Shit, Gabe curses. What is it? They're getting closer together. I think, I think they're doing some kind of suicide pact or something. That doesn't bode well for their situation at all. 
if their touch calls in one of the creatures to do for them what they can't do themselves, it will be out there for a while during the ensuing feast. Esther hates herself for only thinking of herself and Gabe, but in the world they live in, she doesn't have much choice. This leads Esther to think of a possibility that isn't ideal, but better than nothing if it doesn't leave Gabe out there within potential striking distance of one of the creatures. Gabe, Esther says, why don't you see if you can get around them and come inside? You mean inside the CVS? Yeah. Ah, uh, don't know, Esther. I'd stay at one end of the store. You'd be at the other. And what happens if we both have to hunker down in the CVS for tonight? What if we wake up and accidentally run into each other? What happens then? Well, it... Esther starts to say, but stops herself. She'd been about to say that it wouldn't be so bad if that happened. Had she really grown so desperate? She doesn't want to ponder this. No, not at all. Because she doesn't want to acknowledge the possibility that she's gone just as crazy as the two lovers outside, linked together by a bell-laden string that's slacking with every step they take towards each other. Suddenly, she wants to see them. She walks to the doors to look at them. She sees the two women. One is a short, petite brunette in a sundress. The other is a taller blonde, hair bound up in a bun. She's dressed in jeans and a t-shirt. Tattoos run up the length of her arms in thick, colorful sleeves. I always wanted a tattoo, Esther thinks randomly. She wonders why she never got one. The red string that Gabe described is bound around their wrists. The tinkling of the bells reaches her, and it's beautiful. Sounds like wind chimes. The string dips further and further to the ground. A red parabola of doom threatening to engulf the two women outside. They don't see it, or they don't want to see it. Choosing to languish in a moment of bliss, rather than eking out the rest of their lives without touching each other. Don't, Esther whispers. Please, God, don't. But they do. The women meet in the middle, their arms folding around each other. They run their fingers through each other's hair, touch each other's faces, kiss, smile. Shit, here it comes, Gabe warns. Hide! Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Esther turns away from the entrance as the buzzsaw squeal erupts outside. The air warps past the double doors. She hears a sound like a giant foot smashing through a layer of ice. When she turns back, meat and skin and hair splatter across the glass of the doors. Then the feeding begins, and Esther knows the sound all too well. It never fails to make her feel like she's freezing right down to her bone marrow. Gabe, she says softly into the radio. Still here, he says. Got a front row seat at feeding time. God, those poor women. I'm sorry. It's all right. Not my first time seeing this. Right, Esther says. Do you think we can sneak past it? A moment passes. She supposes Gabe is observing the creature. It's pretty focused on its kill right now, Gabe tells her a little later. I don't think it'd come after us, but there's no guarantees. Yeah, you think we should stay in place until it's done? Yeah, what do you think? Better safe than sorry. Agreed. They wait for what feels like a long time. The morning rises to full afternoon, and eventually two o'clock is upon them. They talk very little through the radio. Eventually, Esther can't take the silence anymore and decides to risk contacting Gabe. She thumbs the talk button, quietly inquires if Gabe is still there. Yeah, still here, Gabe replies immediately. I think it's just about done. It ate one of the women, bones and all. And there's just the head left of the other one. There is a question that Hester wants to ask, but doesn't know if she should. It pulls at her mind and the cords that would give it a voice. It doesn't take long for her to give in to its goad. Can you tell me what she looks like? Hester says. Gabe doesn't answer her for a couple of beats. She hears the sound of clattering and sliding cloth, like he's readjusting his position. Ah, uh, can't really see through the creature, Gabe says. It's all that distorted air, you know. Why do you ask? No reason, Esther replies a little too quickly. She's embarrassed by her question. I, I guess I... Just see so few people, you know? I get it, Gabe says, though he doesn't sound like he gets it. He sounds like he's on his way to being weirded out. And suddenly Esther feels like she needs to course correct. I'm sorry, she says, the words coming out in a tumble. I I've just been so alone for so long, and I haven't seen or talked to anyone, and everything I do feels wrong, and... Esther. 
It's all right, Gabe reassures her. It's all right. It really is. I ain't going anywhere. After all that's happened, a little awkwardness isn't out of the ordinary. Esther closes her eyes and sighs in relief. She feels like she's just dodged a major bullet. She's about to thank him when he says, Okay, I think it's gone. She opens her eyes. Are you sure? I'm not seeing any other air distortions, Gabe says. No, there's nothing. Okay, Esther says. You go on ahead. I'll cover you this time. Sounds good. Give me a five-minute head start. All right. Once the requested five minutes have passed, Esther emerges from the CVS. She doesn't immediately head after Gabe, though. Instead, she walks over to the puddle of snapped bones and torn flesh. Very little is left of the bodies. For some reason, this one left the head of one of the women, as Gabe described earlier. The eyes are open and staring, but the mouth is frozen in a smile, rather than a scream. Her final expression is one of almost beatific ecstasy. When Esther reaches down, it's not to close the dead woman's eyes. Esther prefers to have them open. She wants to look into them and once again feel, if only for a moment, what it's like to be loved. The woman's head is heavier than she expects, and she hefts it a little into her hands so she's eye-level with it. She stares into a visible beauty that was never meant for her, but she doesn't care. She tells herself that it was meant for her. It was always meant for her, just waiting for her to come along and experience it for herself. Esther, what the fuck are you doing? Esther is so startled by the exclamation from her radio, she drops the head. It hits the pavement with a cracking sound. It reminds her of a football helmet dropping to the ground. It lays there on its side, a dead thing she's been holding and obsessing over when Gabe must have turned around and saw what she was doing. I, I just, Esther stammers. Through the fog of her terror, she realizes Gabe can't hear her. She snatches the radio from her belt and thumbs down the button. I'm sorry, she blurts out. I'm sorry, I just... You just what, Gabe demands. You just decided to pick up that woman's head. What the fuck is wrong with you? She had no answer. How could you answer such a question when you've literally been caught red-handed? I, I just... I just needed to touch someone, she says. Anyone. I know she's dead, but, but I mean, she can't feel it, right? And the, the things didn't get me, so it's fine. It's all fine. She hears the words spilling from her mouth. And a deep, cold horror yawns within her upon their passage. She knows how she sounds. Knows where she's heard entreaties like this. And the realization of what she's finally given into makes her want to fall to her knees and shriek. Gabe realizes it too, and she hears it in every syllable that hits her through the radio. Esther, he begins slowly, here is what's going to happen. You're going to stay there for 20 minutes. After 
twenty minutes, you can start walking back. Anywhere in that time, if I see you behind me, I will shoot you. I don't want to have to do that. I really don't. You were so kind to me, Esther. And I'd hate to have to repay that kindness with a bullet. Please, don't let me see you for another twenty minutes. Gabe's voice started out strong. Part of the way through, it begins to crack. And by the end, his voice carries a full-on quiver. Like he's trying not to cry. He doesn't wait for her to reply. He just turns around and starts walking, moving with a purpose. She doesn't try to raise him on the radio. She's somewhere between heartbreak, loss, and madness. Esther does what he asks, and sinks down to her knees in the middle of the road, tears dotting her faceplate with water. After twenty minutes, she stands up and gets moving. It takes her a while to get home, but she does make it eventually. On her way to the front door, she stops and looks towards Gabe's house. Gabe is there at the window, his rifle at the ready. He's staring at her with a hard look in his eyes. As if reading her mind, he shakes his head and points at her front door. Esther takes the hint, makes it to her front door, and doesn't bother to look around before inserting the key into the lock and letting herself in. She wonders if she should wash the blood off her suit and decides it can wait until morning. Esther unzips the suit and lets it crumple to the floor around her feet. She steps out of it. In a daze, she heads up to the bathroom and briefly showers to get the sweat and grime off. She imagines what the woman's touch would have felt like if she had been whole. Imagines what her lips would have felt like on her skin. She conjures Gabe, too. And she conjures the man from two months earlier. She brings forth all the people who have touched her throughout her life, intimately or otherwise, and imagines they're all there in the shower with her. All they do is touch, running their fingers through her scalp and across her breasts and down between her legs and buttocks. She sinks into this other reality where nothing hurts, where phantoms love her and the hot water is their touch on her skin. She can't allow Gabe to leave. Esther has been peering between the slits of the planks over her windows, looking at Gabe's house. She keeps thinking that if only he could see that all she needed was a touch, just a little touch, she could get him to come around. It wasn't even a real touch, more like the hint of one. Except she went far beyond a hint. She can't see this right now. It's all clouded over by her need for Gabe to stay. They don't have to share the same house. Of course, no. That would be too dangerous. But he could stay over there, and she could stay over here, and everything would be just fine. Except she can't get him out of her head. She can't get the man in the boxers out of her head. She can't get the woman out of her head. 
She has felt another person's flesh for the first time in almost two years. And she wants more. This singular need is what drives her to get the rifle from the basement, make sure Gabe's not watching the street, and circle around so she's in the backyard of the house next to his. She doesn't bother putting on the suit. If she can catch him while he's leaving, it'll be one less thing to shed. She leaves through the front door. She doesn't bother to close it or lock it as she hurries across the street and between the houses to the left of Gabe's. She emerges on the other side, makes her way through the backyards strewn with dirty toys and overturned patio furniture. She hides in the shadow of the fence bordering the backyard of Gabe's house and waits. As she suspects, Gabe exits the house through the back door. He's stuffed everything into his camping backpack, a small torpedo of canvas and cloth slung over both shoulders. He assesses his weapons, a handgun and a thigh holster, much like hers, and what looks like a modern variant of the Springfield M1A. He carries the rifle by the stock as he closes the door behind him. He tightens the straps on his backpack, casts a final longing look at his home for two months, then starts to walk. He looks between the houses at Esther's place, and something comes over his face. Regret, maybe? Sorrow? Then his face clears, his eyes harden, and he blows out a determined sigh, turning away from Esther's house and quickening his pace. Esther emerges from behind the fence. Her rifle is lifted, but she's not aiming it at him. Not yet. Gabe steps. Immediately, his own rifle is up and trained on her. Esther doesn't make any sudden moves. She just stands there, bottom lip quivering, her eyes watering at the sight of him, standing so close, so goddamn close, with his rifle dictating their distance. How to get around that? Esther, Gabe says slowly, I need you to go back to your house. Esther's lips tighten. Behind them, her teeth sink into her bottom lip, but not hard enough to break the skin. Esther, Gabe says, his tone sharpened. You know we can't touch. We can never touch. You know that, right? He's trying to reason with her, but he doesn't realize just how far beyond reason she is. She takes a step forward. Gabe starts a little, uttering a sharp exhalation. He steps back. She steps forward. He steps back again. Esther, goddammit! Gabe warns. Esther doesn't stop. She's fixated on him. He wouldn't shoot her, would he? Not really. Her movement quickens. Gabe fires around into the ground in front of her and she jumps her fists tightening on her rifle. Esther, I will shoot you if you don't fucking stop, Gabe yells. When he steps back, he ends up tripping a little over his feet. He regains his footing easily enough, but he's surprised and off balance. She sees her chance. Esther lifts the rifle and shoots him in the leg. Gabe screams. His finger squeezes the trigger on his own rifle. 
With another deafening crash of noise, Esther is punched in the shoulder. She spins around and falls to the ground. She doesn't feel any pain at first. That comes when she rolls over, arms in a Christ pose with her legs akimbo. Every singed nerve in her wounded shoulder screams all at once, and she cries out with it, instinctively clapping her right hand over the wound to staunch the bleeding. She looks over at Gabe. He's managed to get to his feet, but he is holding his wounded leg off the ground, hopping a little as he tries to maintain his balance. Esther has the advantage. She rises, gripping her shoulder and hurls forward. Gabe sees her and hobbles toward the house. Part of her registers the pig saw noise bleeding from two backyards over. She doesn't care. Death is preferable to living out the rest of her life without touching or being touched. Gabe, she implores. Gabe, please. Gabe is past listening. He reaches the back door casts a terrified glance over his shoulder, then falls inside and kicks the door shut behind him. She screams when she hears the lock click. Such is her desperation that she throws her unwounded shoulder into the door. It doesn't give, and between the pain and her need, she doesn't have the strength to put any more effort into it. She moves away from the back door, just as Gabe fires twice punching holes through the space where she'd been standing moments before. Esther makes it back to her house. She gets to the bedroom and examines the wound in the mirror. Clean entry and exit. Good. She won't have to go digging around for a bullet. She douses both wounds in rubbing alcohol and manages to stitch the entry wound closed. She comes up with another solution for her exit wound. She takes a pan, heats it up in her fireplace, and almost passes out from pain and the stink of flesh melting together. She puts gauze over both wounds, binds everything together with rags, and her last conscious thought before sinking into unconsciousness is that of Gabe, and that maybe there's still a chance he'll come around. Two nights have passed. Esther can't handle it anymore. A year and several months of isolation, grief, and loneliness have taken their toll. Every movement hurts because of her shoulder, but she can't sit still. She paces from room to room like a caged animal. In the two days since her confrontation with Gabe, she's gone from walking around the house fully clothed to walking around in nothing but her underwear. Tonight, she's fully naked, and her body is red from the way she's raked her nails up and down every inch of her she can find. She tries to imagine it's someone else, but her imagination simply isn't cutting it anymore. Before she heads across the street to Gabe's, she decides to at least slip on a pair of panties. If Gabe shoots her, he shoots her. That's all there is to it. She'd rather be dead than feel like her skin is about to tear itself free of her muscles and slink away into the dark for another minute. She barely registers the damp of the concrete and asphalt under her bare feet as she crosses the street and melds with the dark that pools under Gabe's front porch. Esther uses a credit card to jimmy the lock. When it retracts, she pushes the door open. 
The hinges squeak loudly. She steps into the house and scans the inside, giving her eyes time to adjust to the dark. It seems mostly clean and orderly, save for the dark splotches on the hardwood floor leading upstairs. She doesn't have to think too hard to figure out what it is. Eyes turned upward. Esther ascends the staircase. The sounds of movement in one of the rooms upstairs makes her pause. When she doesn't hear it again, she continues on. She finds him in one of the bedrooms. She hears shaking, rattling gasps of breath from the form huddled under a blanket. Esther can feel him looking at her. She's sure he can feel her looking back at him. She goes around to the other side of the bed and lays down next to him. The heat coming off his body tells her he might have a fever, maybe from the wound getting infected. Maybe he passed out one too many times and hasn't properly treated the wound she made in his leg. She doesn't know, and she doesn't care, because he is here, and he is now, and he can't leave her. She lays down on the bed next to him and snuggles in close. She leans into his neck and throws a leg over his midsection. After a while, he maneuvers his arm so it's around her shoulders. This is how the creatures find them when they come, sensing the presence of prey through their touch. Neither Esther nor Gabe feel anything when they're destroyed in their slumber. The last they did feel was each other before they drifted into sleep, and afterward, perhaps only the touch of loved ones in their dreams. That was Matthew Nichols' Toucher, as read by Michelle Kane. Michelle is from the Kansas City metropolitan area. She has a dulcimer and a baudrin that she doesn't have time to play because she spends her time working in a cube farm and being mom to a six-year-old son and their 11-year-old Labrador. And, of course, narrating stories when she has the chance. She can be found on Twitter at ShellDavis72. Thank you, Michelle. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Support us on Patreon for access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. Right now, we're entering the home stretch of Henry James's classic, The Turn of the Screw. Visit patreon.com slash tales to terrify to sign up. Or if PayPal's more your style, you can support us via the link near the bottom of our homepage at talestoterrify.com. And if you got a minute to spare, we'd love it if you'd pop over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating or a review. Ratings and reviews are huge to a volunteer-run podcast like ours. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini. 
with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we take hold of your fears with more Tales to Terrify. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.